the book of Colossians. Click it once. Okay. In our study of Paul's letter to the Colossians, we've already learned quite a few things, uh, both good and bad, about the church there. Paul was very grateful for the reception of the gospel, the fruit that it had borne, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and their love, which was very well demonstrated to those around them, their love for the brethren. Paul's prayer from them, we also learned that though there was still quite a bit of room to grow, um, we also found in that prayer a good model for ourselves of how we should be praying for one another if we really want to see each other walking in a manner worthy of our Lord. That's going to take... uh, a knowledge and a wisdom to know God's will. And then we can walk with Him properly. As Paul was concluding that prayer, he marked out four specific things God has done for us for which we should be thankful. It is God who has qualified us to receive an inheritance with the saints. He is one who has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred the kingdom of His beloved Son. And in Jesus Christ, He is the one who has redeemed us from our sins that we might have forgiveness of sins. Salvation is the work of God for our benefit. Paul then expands on the nature and position of the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who is the image of God, the icon of God, the one who reveals his very nature. He who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. He is also preeminent over creation as the architect of it, the maker of it or builder, the one who is the possessor of it and the sustainer of it. And then last week we looked at Jesus' preeminence in the church. He is its head, its origin is in him. He is the one that brought about reconciliation between God and man so the church could even exist through the means of him dying in his fleshly body on the cross as that sacrifice. So Jesus' supremacy over the creation of the church corrected the false doctrine that was starting to be taught at Colossae by some of those that were present because they were attacking his deity and his humanity. Last week, we concluded with Colossians 1.23, which reads, If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now, last week, I emphasized as we were getting toward the end of the sermon that the difference between a true believer and one with a false profession of faith is a true believer will persevere in faith. It's not going to go away. And then in that verse, Paul also uses a hyperbole, this idea of being proclaimed in all heaven or all creation under heaven, to express the universal availability of the gospel as opposed to the very narrow, exclusive doctrine of the early Gnosticism that was being promoted in, in Colossae. Theirs was really restricted. The gospel went out. In fact, we don't know how far the gospel went out in those years by the time Paul wrote to Colossae, uh, 61, 62 A.D., We do know from the book of Acts that it had already gone through most of the Roman world. We know from the traditions uh, about the other apostles that it had spread uh, south into Africa, it had gone east over into India, north up into modern Russia, and was spreading up into Europe as well. And we don't know how far other than the apostles had taken even farther. Because remember, Paul got to a lot of places, the gospel was already there. Someone else had already taken it. He wasn't the first. So even though it's hyperbole, the gospel had spread very rapidly even in those first couple decades after Christ's resurrection. 
Now this week, I want to pick up from Paul's statement here in verse 23 that he was made a minister or servant of the gospel and then examine his further explanation here in verses 24 through 29. Follow along as I read. Verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints." to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Now in verse 23, Paul states he was made a minister of the gospel. In verse 25, he adds, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. A minister of the gospel, a minister to the church. Now, the word minister, diakonos, we get our word deacon from that, means minister, servant, attendant. In Greek culture, it was specifically used for the one who would wait at table to serve food and drink. It's a subservient position. Our tendency is to elevate the minister to a position of some importance that people then seek to gain it, thinking that would make them important, a title, position of pride. Paul didn't see it that way. The importance of a minister is directly related to whom he is rendering service and the particular task given to him. We often refer to those who are involved in relationships between countries as the minister of foreign affairs. We use that term, minister. The importance of that individual then is related to the country he represents and the duties the country has placed upon him in representing the nation. Now, in these two verses, Paul specifically states he is a minister of the gospel and a minister of the church. His specific task then were to proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and to serve the body of Christ, the church. Interesting enough, though Paul has the authority as an apostle, in fact, he calls himself that in verse 1, an apostle is one sent with authority, he himself views himself as a minister, a deacon, a servant. There was humility on Paul's part. Now, that's a great contrast between leadership in the world and leadership in the church, isn't it? We follow the example Christ gave us. We follow the example Paul gave us. It's not about gaining positions of power and authority. It's about gaining positions of greater service. Jesus said this over in Matthew 20. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. This is at the Last Supper. Jesus called them, his apostles, his disciples himself, and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Paul points out in both these verses that he was made a minister. That's how he identified himself. That's the position he believed God had given him, one who was a servant. It's not something he sought for himself. 
the story of his conversion in Acts 9 is one of God's direct and very dramatic intervention into Paul's life. Now, such a dramatic intervention, so direct, calling by God was rare even in the Bible, Old and New Testament. But that does not mean that God has not called us to be ministers. In fact, we know from Scripture that He has. In fact, every single Christian is called to serve God as a minister, as a servant, as His slave. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, all speak about us being gifted by God to serve Him within His body, the church. Different gifts, different ministries, different extensions of those ministries, all of it given by God as He desires to the individual to be His servant. God calls us, just as much as Paul was called. You may not have had been on the way to go persecute Christians and saw the light as God intervened in your life, but you're still called. And He's placed and gifted you to do service for Him. In fact, Galatians 5.13 calls us to serve one another in love. And the word for serve there is actually the one of the actions of a slave. That's how we are to view ourselves and our rendering of service to others. This attitude is important. What is the attitude of a slave? Complete submission of the slave's will to that of the master. Wherever the master sends him, that's what he does. His joy, his goal is to please the master. If that is our mindset, then there is absolutely no room for arrogance or pride within the church, is there? There is no position of higher something or other. We are to be humble with one another, preferring one another, looking out for one another's interests, just as Philippians uh, 2, 3, and 4 tell us. That's to be what we're, we're doing with one another. That was Paul's attitude. Why? He clearly understood God made him a minister, a servant. Now, Paul, in the next verse, verse 24, states something that is very unusual to non-Christian, very odd to them. He says, now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In the midst of my sufferings, I am rejoicing for your sake. Now, that just seems odd. And yet, we find that that kind of statement's throughout the Scriptures. The reason is that the purpose of the life of the Christian is different from the non-Christian, so he can take joy even in the midst of terrible circumstances. If you believe that life is about you, and therefore what is most important in life is getting and experiencing what you want, then your happiness is completely dependent upon your circumstances. If you like your circumstances, there are good circumstances, life is good and you're happy. If the circumstances are negative, you don't like them, then life is bad. And let's face it, unless you have some sort of severe psychological problem, suffering is bad circumstances, right? Okay? Non-Christians often use this reality of suffering to attack God, claiming, well, if He exists and He's good and all-powerful, there shouldn't be any suffering. Now, those views are very shallow and very short-sighted. Why do we suffer? Why is it suffering in the world? We suffer because of sin. We suffer because of our own sin, the consequences of it. We suffer because other people sin against us, and we suffer their consequences. And we suffer because we live in a sin-cursed world. It doesn't work the way God had originally created it. That's why we're looking forward to His return and a restoring of what it was meant to be. We're looking forward to that. Now, what would happen if God was going to eliminate all suffering in the present? Think about that a minute. 
If God's going to eliminate all suffering in the present, what must He do? He must eliminate all causes of suffering in the present, which is me and you and everybody else. He's got to eliminate all of us if He's going to get rid of suffering. Aren't you glad that He's patient? And that is why first, or 2 Peter 3.15 states it exactly that way. Regard the patience of the Lord to be salvation. He puts up with us. He endures us while He's giving us time to come to repentance and then even after repentance to change and be conformed to the image of His Son. Praise the Lord for His patience. Now, for Christians... We know that the suffering that comes as part of the tribulations, trials of life can result in an increasing maturity in our own life. Romans chapter 5 talks about that. James chapter 1 talks about that. We also know that because there is sin in the world, that suffering is simply part of it. Jesus told his followers in John 16, 33, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer or take courage. I have overcome the world. We have a hope in Him. But notice that in this world we're going to have troubles and trials and tribulations. And they're going to come from all sorts of different sources. We also know that as Christians we are going to suffer at the hands of the unrighteous. Now that isn't as well understood here in America, but it's certainly understood by brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. They know that proclaiming Christ means they've got a mark on them. And they are going to be persecuted. They may even be martyred. But didn't our Lord tell us exactly that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5? Blessed are you when men shall revile you, say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake, for so they treated the prophets who were before you. 2 Timothy 3, 2, Paul was direct. He says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We should expect it. What is our attitude towards it? It should be that of like the apostles. In Acts 5.41, they had been hauled before the Sanhedrin. They had been uh, a trial in front of them, kangaroo court, and then they were flogged. Acts 5.41 says after they are leaving, after they've been flogged, it says they were rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's kind of hard to do, though, sometimes, isn't it? That when I'm persecuted, that I rejoice in it, counting myself blessed, that God consider me worthy to suffer for his namesake. But the Christian can rejoice even in suffering because we live for the glory of God. That is the goal. With that as the goal of becoming like Jesus, then we've got a hope beyond the present. And we would take joy in sharing in the suffering of our Savior, even as 1 Peter 4.13 calls us to do. We have a whole different perspective. And that's what Paul had. And so he rejoices in the midst of suffering. In particular, this is true of Paul. In Acts 9, as it's going through about his conversion, then it talks about the Holy Spirit talking with Ananias in Damascus and telling him about Paul's conversion and what Ananias was supposed to do in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit told Ananias that not only is Paul going to be a chosen instrument to bear Christ's name to the Gentiles, but also that, quote, I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Paul knew from the very beginning that in being called to be Christ's minister, he was going to suffer for the sake 
of Christ's name. And he considered it a joyful thing in the midst of it because he knew the benefits to others. Now that brings us to the reality of the next verse. Uh, different versions really do different things with this verse. It's, a, it's kind of a hard one in Greek to even to come up with what's Paul after. The New King James Version reads it this way, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. To me, that seems a little better and more close to the text than uh, the New American Standard, which I usually use. Now, Roman Catholics have tried to grab that verse and then say it supports the doctrine of purgatory. That's the idea that a baptized Catholic will undergo penal suffering to purify him from whatever is remaining that's impure in them, their imperfections. So they themselves will suffer in order to cleanse themselves after they die. That's what purgatory is all about. Now that idea is heretical from the beginning since man cannot be justified before God by any means except faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His atonement. You cannot work your way, you cannot cleanse yourself in any manner. But in trying to use this particular verse to teach purgatory fails on every single count. First of all, Paul is referring to suffering in his body while he is alive, not after he's dead. Second, Paul's suffering is for the sake of the body of Christ, it's not for himself. Purgatory, you suffer for yourself. Third, Paul makes no reference to his suffering bringing about expiation of sins of anyone. So even the idea that you could gain grace because some saint who has gone on, had extra grace to give to you is not in the passage. It's irrelevant. It's not in the scriptures anywhere. Can't be supported. You can't transfer that. Fourth, the term affliction here, philipsis, is never used of the suffering of Christ. There's another word that's used for that. Affliction's never used for it. Fifth, and most importantly, Jesus' work of atonement was complete. When he said, it is finished, guess what? It was finished. And Hebrews 10, 12 states it clearly. Hebrews 10, 12. But he, that is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. It's finished. He has paid the price. So Paul was not filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ in any sense of adding to Jesus' work of atonement. Paul's sufferings were strictly in accord with what Jesus said was going to happen to him. It's strictly in accord with the rest of scriptures that talk about every Christian is going to suffer on behalf of Christ. We become partakers, we share in it. There is no lack in Jesus Christ. The only lack is the full measure of affliction the unrighteous will pour out on the righteous followers of Christ. When that happens, we share in his sufferings because the wrath of evil people ultimately is against who? You? No, it's about Christ. It's ultimately against God. It's Christ in you. Romans 8, 17 says we suffer with Christ, with, with our Lord. Luke 6, says it's for his sake we will suffer. Philippians 3, 10, it talks about the fellowship of suffering with him. And again, Paul in particular understood the afflictions he suffered were intended for Christ. He mentions that in Galatians 6, 17, 2 Corinthians 11, 23-28. He knew why he was afflicted. It's because people hate Christ. So what we suffer 
is often used by God for the benefit of others. And that was true in the case of Paul here. And that's why he said, for their sake, he rejoices in his suffering. He was afflicted because he was a minister of the gospel, and in proclaiming the gospel, there was a benefit even if he had to suffer for it. Evil people will react bad to it. They will cause suffering. But to the righteous, to those that God is calling, it brings salvation. The gospel is the power of God for, to salvation for all who believe, Romans 1.16 tells us. And Paul's current imprisonment is not from a lack of power of God. In his letter to the Philippians, written at this very same time as Colossians, Paul talks about his imprisonment. He talks about what he was undergoing, and yes, it was bad. In fact, there were other things going on where people were trying to make it even worse on him. And yet he said, I rejoice because my imprisonment has resulted in two things that are extremely important. One, others are more bold in their own proclaiming of the gospel. So he became an encouragement, and others were being uh, more faithful, more bold, and going out and telling the gospel to the others. And second, he said, because I'm in prison... The gospel has gone throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, that Caesar's elite force. The gospel was spread rapidly through them and even into Caesar's household. How would Paul ever be able to get the gospel into that group except being in prison? And that's how Paul viewed life. I'll simply serve God wherever he puts me, and so I rejoice. I see God's hand at work even in the midst of the suffering that evil people are causing and placing upon me. Now, there's a reason Paul had this whole mindset, and it's there in verse 25. He understood he was made a minister, but how he was made a minister is important. Verse 25, he says, According to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. A steward, oikonomia, is literally a house manager. And that idea broadened to the, the idea of someone who would be entrusted by an owner with the responsibilities. A house steward with someone, the owner would say, you run the house, you take care of everything, everything that goes on in here, all the workers, all, you know, think more of a, an estate where there's a lot of workers. You're going to manage everything, and that allows the owner to go do other things, right? But that's an often responsibility for this guy. He has to give an account to the owner of everything he does. Well, that was the idea that Paul is here and how, why this word is used this way. His position as a minister of the gospel and to the church was placed on by God as a stewardship. He would be directly accountable to God for the responsibilities of ministry of the gospel and to the church. Now, Paul did not work his way into this position. He didn't earn it by any fashion. He didn't gain it by a vote. There was not some committee that selected him and put him in that position. The responsibilities were placed upon him by God. Now, that's something to keep in mind about whatever ministry God has given you. Ultimately, it's God that places you there. Now, I understand. Acts 13, we find that the church in Antioch sets aside Paul and Barnabas and sends them out as missionaries. Who did it, though? The Holy Spirit did it and caused that to happen. The church was simply the means by which God sent them out. Yes, I do understand. Paul and Barnabas eventually get back to Antioch, and they give a report to the church. Was that so that Paul and Barnabas would be faithful in ministry? No, it was so that the church would rejoice in what God was doing. Very different motivation, isn't it? We enter into a different realm of understanding of ministry when we understand this concept of stewardship. 
It is something that God places upon you. It is to Him you give an account. And so whatever spiritual gift you have, whatever ministry God allows you to have, whatever extent that ministry have is given to you by God, and to Him you will give an account. So who are you really serving? God. Serving Him by serving other people or whatever He asks you to do. The motivations then change from pleasing people to pleasing God. Only at that point, when we understand that, do we move from being faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to us and stop being the clog or the cog in some wheel of religious programs. If that's all you are, you're not really ministering, are you? You're just a, a cog in a wheel. And that's not what God has called us to do a steward of what he's entrusted to us. And so the motivation is there regardless of people. I'm there to serve God. Now, Paul also makes it clear in this verse that the Colossians were the ones that benefited even though Paul had not met them yet. He had not seen them face to face. Because Paul was faithful in delivering the gospel, Epaphras apparently heard it while Paul was teaching in Ephesus, and Epaphras stood at Colossae. They heard the gospel and responded to it. Paul's faithfulness resulted in a chain of events and actions that resulted in them hearing the gospel and responding to it. His continued faithfulness was now benefiting them in the very letter he was writing them, as he's encouraging them to truth and warning them against false doctrine that was creeping in. Now, that's a good reminder for us as well. You do not know the long-term effects of whatever ministry you have. In fact, often we think we're doing some little thing and go, you know, is it really important? Probably not. You don't know that. You have no idea. Once in a while we get a glimpse of it. We get a story back about something we were doing here and someone will say, you know what? God really blessed me and here's how my life changed because of what you did. Once in a while we get a glimpse. For the most part, we will not know until eternity when we see the fruits of the, our faithfulness in whatever ministry God has given us. We were talking about Awana earlier. You're having kids memorize verses. So that it doesn't seem like much. Okay, I'm sitting there. The kids are memorizing verses. I'm checking them off. What big deal is that, right? It's a big deal. You're a part of what's motivating this child to memorize something. And you don't know down the line how that's going to affect him and how he lives. Might even be the verse that turns him and says, you know what? Everything is about Christ, isn't it? And he goes on and he's sharing with someone else. And someone else comes to the gospel because of that. Who knows what fruit is going to bear out of that? What lives of godliness bear out of that? Of something simple. Never discount whatever God has given you, no matter how petty you may think it be, how simple it is. You don't know the effects. You don't know where it's going to go. But we may find out in eternity. And I think that's a good reason for looking forward to getting to heaven. We're going to find out a whole lot about what God did with our faithfulness. There's a lot of people I'd like to thank personally for their faithfulness that has ended up in where I am in life. All sorts of people from when I was a little child even to the present day of people just remind me, hey, wait a minute, the Word of God says this, here's God's character, continue walking the way you need to. We praise God for those things. The beneficiaries were the Colossians, even though Paul was suffering for it. Now, in verses 26 and 27, Paul keeps referring to a mystery. And uh, that's not to be confused with mysteries, the plural form, which was often used in the religious rites of Greek paganism. 
those mysteries were kept secret and only the initiates were allowed to know what they were. The word used here, mysterion, is in the singular and throughout the New Testament it's only used in making known or speaking what the mystery was, past tense. It's always used in connection of what was not known is now known. It's been exposed. That's how it's used consistently. It's been revealed by God. Now Paul states here, verse 26, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. What had not been known previously has now been disclosed. The word used here, phanereo, uh, has a root in the word for light. In other words, God has brought to light what had been previously hidden in ages past and to earlier generations. History is the record of God's revelation of Himself and His will, with each revelation giving a clearer understanding of both. Now, the particular ministry, mystery that Paul is speaking about here is the one that is disclosed to His saints. That's how he phrases it here. To those who are made righteous in Jesus Christ. And it is not that God is hiding the news of justification by faith in Jesus from the non-Christians. He is not. He is not hiding from them the truth of what God has done so they could be justified before God and made right. The problem is the unrighteous will not believe it. They refuse to believe it. 2 Corinthians 4.4 states that the unbelieving, their minds are blinded by Satan. So it is only believers that will recognize it, understand it. Now, Paul continues in verse 7 to explain the manifestation of this mystery to the saints. He says, to whom, that is to the saints, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The sinfulness of man is such that he is going to reject the revelation of God in favor of his own sin. That is the natural state of man. Jesus put it this way in John 3.19. Most of you know John 3.16. Some of you might know 3.17. Usually we don't get past that. But 3.19 is also important because he's given the negative side. He says, this is the judgment that the light, that is Christ, is come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. They don't want the truth. They don't want it exposed. They run away from the light. Just as a rat's going to run away from it if you shine a light on him at night, right? He scatters. So do men. They love their evil. Therefore, God must intervene, and that is what, again, we find in this verse. And that's contrary to all the heretical ideas that were being promoted in Colossae that God was distant from His creation. He's not distant. He's not distant from you. The idea in deism that God has started on and now He doesn't care, absolutely false. He intervenes in the life of the individual. And again, it does not have to be as dramatic as what happened to Paul but He's still intervening in your life individually to pull you from where you were to give you an understanding and sense of what the truth is so that you would seek it. God's very involved in the lives of men. In fact, it's only by God's will that man ever comes to salvation because God intervenes to make that revelation known. It's out there. How many of you in your own testimony? You walked your own way for years and years. You became an adult. You're still walking your own way. The gospel has been around you all your life. You live in America. It's broadcast on TV. It's broadcast on 
radio. It's in papers and pamphlets and handouts, and there's churches everywhere. And yet you kept rejecting it until finally God intervened in your life and called you to himself. This is God's action. That's why all praise needs to go to him. Now, what is this mystery? He specifically states that this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he makes a particular emphasis here that it includes the Gentiles. The Jews were supposed to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests that would proclaim the glory of God to all the nations. Exodus 19.6, Isaiah 43.21, Isaiah 61-3, all talk about that. Paul, himself Jewish, was carrying out those commands. He was proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. That's us. The result, that those who were not a people became the people of God. He moved us in and called us his own, adopted us into his own family. And so we became the church, a new entity. God's called out ones from among all people to be his assembly. Paul's phrasing and stating the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory, explains why the revelation of God in the proclamation of the gospel can be openly declared throughout the world and yet only manifested to his saints. Non-Christians can intellectually understand the historical facts. They can understand the theological claims of Jesus. They can understand that the good news that God offers for the forgiveness of sins to all who believe in him as son of God They can understand those things. They can understand the sacrificial atonement for sin, and they can understand that he claimed to rose from the dead. Problem again is is they won't believe it. They refuse to believe it. Therefore, the Messiah cannot be in them. He cannot indwell them. The result is they cannot have a hope of regeneration. They cannot have a hope of redemption, a hope of reconciliation, a hope of forgiveness of sins. And without those, you cannot have a hope for heaven for eternal future with with God in heaven. Ephesians 3.17 says, Christ dwells in you through the means of faith. That's how it happens. It's through faith. And it is Christ in you by which the Holy Spirit then regenerates what was dead, and you were dead in your trespass of sin. He regenerates that. He makes it alive, and you can believe. You can comprehend And then you can repent, turning your mind, changing your mind from what you used to believe to what the truth is, and then following him. He's the one that does all that. And in regenerating your spirit, he sets you free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8, 1 through 11, makes it very clear. If you do not have the spirit of Christ, if Christ is not in you, you're not part of him. And if you're not part of him, you are still in your flesh, only in your flesh, and still under God's condemnation. God is glorified by his redemption and reconciliation of a people for himself to whom he grants forgiveness of sin and the promise of his indwelling in the present and a promise in the future of eternity in heaven with him. The nature, the work of Jesus Christ places him as preeminent over creation and the church And the day is going to come when every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so he's going to be glorified. But God is also glorified in the present by how his people live for him. Matthew 5, 16, our our manner of life, our good works should be done in such a way that people see them and glorify who? Our Father who is in heaven. 
Paul pointed out earlier in verse 22 that he reconciled us, Jesus reconciled us, to himself through Jesus' body as the sacrifice for sin for a purpose. And that purpose was so that we'd be holy and blameless and above reproach. It's for that reason that Paul continues in verse 28 to explain two aspects of this preaching and the goal of them. He says, and we proclaim him, we proclaim Jesus, admonishing every man and every and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. Now, proclaiming Christ is the general action that Paul is talking about. He's proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming who Jesus is. Admonishing and teaching are specific aspects of this general message. The first, this idea of proclaim, kata angelio, uh, angelos is where we get the word angel, it means messenger, is someone who publicly announces something, declares something. That's what a messenger does. He's given a message, he goes to the place he needs to, whoever he needs to tell him, and he declares, this is the message, he proclaims it. That's what's going on. Paul's focal point was Christ. That's who he's proclaiming. Messiah, the anointed one from old, the one who will redeem us. That is his message. That's what he's proclaiming. Tragically, that's not true among many who say that they're Christians. Jesus is not the focal point. And to the degree that Jesus, our Messiah, the Christ is not the focus of the message, is the degree to which the message is not really Christian. It may be religious, but it's not Christian because it's not about Christ. It's about something else. And the tragedy that so much of American Christianity has been swallowed up by this. Now, admonishment, nutheteo, is the first aspect of this proclaiming Christ because it encompasses the negative side of the instruction. It is proclaiming this is what is wrong and warning about what happens if it's not corrected. So here's what's wrong and a warning about it. It's the first part the, that Jesus gave himself in his own message. What did Jesus start off his whole ministry with? Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your mind, which is what repent means. We warn people that they are sinner under God's condemnation. They must turn from their sin and embrace the Savior. But tragically, sin is so negative, America is now filled with preachers that refuse to do this. They don't like to talk about sin, so they either redefine it. Robert Schuller and his followers have done that. Or they just simply won't, not, they're not going to mention it at all. Joel Osteen won't mention sin. He won't talk about it. He has said publicly, people don't want to hear about sin, so I'm not going to talk about it. So what are you calling them to? You missed the truth. The truth begins with a negative. There's an admonishment. There is a truth that we warn people about. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus say? You must be poor in spirit to enter the kingdom of heaven. There has to be a humility there. You must mourn in order to be comforted. If you don't understand your sin, what are you going to mourn over? What Robert Schuller says is, well, you don't have the best life you possibly could live, and that's why you're mourning? That's complete selfishness. Jesus also said, you must be pure in heart to see God, and there's only one way your heart's going to get pure. Jesus has got to cleanse it. Admonishing is also a continued part of normal preaching in the church. Again, there's no salvation without repentance. 
because there's no change of mind about your sinful state, about what God has done for you in Christ. And if there's no change there, then there cannot be any saving faith, any saving belief in Him. Now, admonishment, again, is normal for the church. It's a normal thing that we need to be doing. Why? Because we as Christians still need to be warned as, you know what, you're not doing it right here. Don't do that. Here's the consequences. You don't want those consequences. There's a negative part. Quit doing that. And we have to admonish one another. Stop what you're doing. Avoid those things. Paul is going to do a lot of admonishing in this book, isn't he? As we get to the rest of it, you're going to see it. There's a lot of admonishing. Stop doing that. Avoid that. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says that not only must the unruly be admonished, but as a normal part of body life, it's part of how we interact with each other to help each other grow. Uh, he's going to talk about that again in Colossians 3.16. In Romans 15.14, Paul commended them because they were able to admonish each other. So admonishment is one part of the proclamation, the negative side. But there's also the positive side, and that's teaching. Didasco is proclaiming the instructions of what we should do. Here's what you should seek. Here's what you should do. And it also is part of the basic part of the normal Christian life. Why? It's what the Great Commission tells us to do in making disciples. Go make disciples. Or how do you make disciples? You go out, you talk to people about Christ. Some respond to the message. You baptize them, identifying in the name of the, uh, with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That's a baptism. And then the rest of our lives, what happens? Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded. Teaching is the rest of our lives. Instructions. Here's what God wants you to be. Here's what He wants you to do. Here's how He wants you to live. Here's the attitudes He wants you to have. Here's how He wants you to be conformed to His image. We also find in the Scriptures themselves, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that one of the functions of Scripture is so that every man is adequately equipped for every good work. Teaching comes from the Scriptures. Now, what's the goal of all of it? Maturity. Maturity. The goal of admonishing, the goal of teaching, to present every man complete in Christ. Complete comes from the word teleos, which means to reach its end, and hence complete, perfect, mature. That was Paul's goal. That should be our goal as well. And one of the weaknesses of American Christianity is that this goal has been easily forgotten. Some groups focus so much on getting people to make a profession of faith in Jesus, they forget that the profession is a starting point, not the end point. There's a whole lot that goes on after that, but they're just trying to get a notch on their, you know, their spiritual belt. See, I got all these people to, to pray this prayer with me. Well, you might have gotten to pray before prayer. I don't know if they got saved or not, because someone who's saved is going to walk with Christ. But that's their focus. Others, they focus on keeping people happy. We want you to go out always happy and encouraged because that way our budget keeps up because happy people give and they bring other people who want to be happy with them and the church maintains its large size and prestige in the community. We end up with positive message of self-esteem, self-improvement, tolerance of sin and worldly success instead of what Scripture says we need to be doing, which is preaching messages of humility submission to the Lord, forsaking sin, and heavenly success. Exact opposite. That's a focus on the things that are on this earth and the present life and circumstances instead of living a life with a mind that are set on the things above, which Paul's going to talk to them about in Colossians 3.2. Where's your mind? Well, 
regardless of what is going on in society, or even within American Christianity, you can make sure you are focused correctly on the proper goal of becoming mature in Christ. You can follow Paul's example of Galatians 2.20, where Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. When you crucify something, it's dead. I have died with Christ, and I no longer live. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul's goal was a simple one. I'm living for Christ, and Christ is living through me declaring himself to those around me. We can do that. It is your purpose in life that drives your actions of life. Do you know your purpose? Do you know your purpose? God's purpose in redeeming you is to conform you to the image of his Son, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Now, what does it take for that purpose to be fulfilled? Paul tells us, verse 29, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. It does take hard work on ourselves. We have a part we play, and it's hard work. But the strength is provided by God. Paul uses two words here to describe this labor. The first one, kapaio, is a toilsome labor, the kind that makes you grow weary. Luke 5.5, it was used of the fishermen working all night. They're tired in the morning after doing that. 2 Timothy 2.6, it's used of a hard-working farmer. John 4.6, it's talking about Jesus being wearied from his travels. That's kapiao. The other word, agonizomai, means to fight, to strive, contend. We get our word agonize from it. It's used to describe the labor of an athlete who puts everything into competing for the prize. There's an agony within it. It's the fighting the good fight of faith. There's an agony in it, 1 Timothy 6.12. Now, there are those who are ministers that are lazy. They do the minimal amount of work. That's not what Paul's talking about here, and that's not what normal ministry should be. He describes his own ministry, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 through 28, included not just what he suffered at the hands of the unrighteous, it included, it says, labor, hardship, many sleepless nights, and then he goes on in the daily pressure of the concern for all the churches. In his letters to Timothy, it's a common theme he has that ministry of the gospel is hard work. The godly minister is going to work hard, laboring at times the point of being weak, weary. Why? Because we are in a fight against the forces of evil in a war for the souls of men. We should be weary in that battle. And it would be a completely overwhelming task task if you had to do it yourself, if it was in your own strength. You couldn't do it. Instead, we find that it is God that empowers us to do it. He works through us. Paul worked hard. He agonized in ministry. All of it, he says, is according to the power of God which was working in him. He did his part. He was diligent in his efforts to the point physically, mentally, even emotionally exhausted at times. Yet everything accomplished was God energizing him, which is the word that's used here. And the same is true for us. It is God that sustains us. It is God that accomplishes his will through us. And that truth gives us a confidence to face the task that otherwise we'd be completely overwhelmed by. We work, but it is God that is working in and through us to accomplish a task. What then should we fear? Anything? No, nothing. We may be weak. We are weak. 
I'm weak. But what did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 12, 9? God's power is perfected in weakness, which is why he chooses the weak things of the world, as 1 Corinthians 1, 28 tells us, to shame the things that are strong. It means he uses us. However we are, whatever we're like, he uses us. The creator of the universe uses us, weak things, to accomplish things that are incredible. Now, these truths then so well demonstrate in Paul's life, the same ones sustain us, whatever our spiritual gifts, whatever our ministry, whatever extent that ministry is to, it is God working in us. He equips us, he strengthens us because he has all power and authority given to him. So it comes down to this. We simply surrender our will to his. We step forward in faith to serve him. And then we see God do things that blow our minds. God can use me to do that. Yes, God used you to do that. Our God is great. I'm going to ask Andrea and Jonathan to come on up.